when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the backwards and forwards over the EU withdrawal bill and our investigation into sexual harassment in politics. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, our political editor, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, and political correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all those usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. It was a week of high drama and tense votes in the House of Commons. The crucial EU withdrawal bill came back for MPs to vote on the amendments that were put in by peers. And Theresa May's government succeeded in repealing most of them. But there was a nail-biting vote on whether MPs should have a quote-unquote meaningful vote on Brexit. This matters because it could give MPs the powers to stop a no-deal Brexit, stop a Mrs May Brexit or stop any Brexit at all. The government did broker a compromise on on Wednesday, then it all fell apart on Thursday. So you're essentially back to exactly where we started. So George Parker, obviously, is a lot of Brexit legislation to get through the House of Commons. It matters because there needs to be legal basis for the UK to leave the EU in less than 300 days, I'll remind you. The, with, the withdrawal bill had a lot of changes made to it in the House of Lords, with peers trying to give Parliament more power over the process and also to try and soften Brexit. Mm. What happened this week? Well, welcome to my world. I quite like the way you put it, then we're back to where we started at the beginning of the week. Well, as you say, the heart of this is the government's EU withdrawal bill, which is their flagship bit of legislation that makes Brexit happen legally in the UK. And on Tuesday, as you say, they managed to get through, on the face of it, unscathed, they managed to reverse the 14 amendments they wanted to reverse, including amendments which potentially look like they could be quite tricky. For example, keeping Britain in a customs union, potentially keeping Britain in the single market through membership of the EEA, which turned out to be more of a problem for Jeremy Corbyn than it was for Theresa May. But then at the heart of it was this big question. It's a power struggle between Parliament and the government. Who takes control of the final stages of the Brexit deal when going gets tough and it looks like there may not be a deal? Theresa May looked defeat in the face. The chief whip, Julian Smith, was hopping around the back benches trying to get a deal together. 14 or so, maybe a few more, trooped into Theresa May's private office in the House of Commons. She promised them she'd sort them out. It would all be okay. They accordingly didn't vote against the government and they waited to see whether the Prime Minister would actually honour the promise they thought they'd secured from her. And when they finally saw the compromise amendment, which they'd been promised on Thursday afternoon, just before five o'clock, the deadline, they didn't like the look of it at all. And you ended up with pro-Europeans saying that Theresa May had acted in a sneaky way, an unforgivable way, that what she'd done was unacceptable. And so, yes, we're back to where we were at the start of the week, except for the fact that the atmosphere has just got one hell of a lot worse. So we'll unpick all that, Miranda, because it's all very complicated, but obviously it does matter. The wider context we've got going on here is this battle between Remainers and Brexiters. Brexiters essentially say Theresa May should have the power to go to Brussels, get a Brexit deal, and we've already had meaningful votes in the EU. 
EU referendum, the vote trigger Article 50. Remainers, on the other hand, really, they know the House of Commons is always going to opt for a slightly softer Brexit. And so they want to do everything they can to give Parliament that power. There's a lot of shadow boxing going on here with both sides trying to lay out their arguments on why all this matters. But ultimately, it's about shaping what Brexit looks like. Well, it is, absolutely. I think you've put your finger on it, Seb, because the problem is that the Brexiters desperately want the government to be able to go to Brussels and threaten no deal, an outcome that Brussels doesn't want either. But, of course, the Remainers and most of the MPs in the House of Commons are terrified that that threat of no deal would accidentally turn into the reality of no deal, which they want to avoid. So that's why they want it essentially taken off the table and the control given back to Parliament. You know, there's been a lot of talk of other backstops, but actually they want the backstop to be that Parliament can decide to soften the blow and that's absolutely crucial to them. But as you say, the wider context is this idea that Mrs May, as the Prime Minister being forced to enact a Brexit she doesn't believe in, has been constantly trying to play off these two sides, keep everybody on board, both Brexiters and Remainers. And it's been a tightrope that she's looked in serious danger of falling off this week. And sort of ironically, I think, where we've been left, George is talking about some of the few things that maybe have changed this week. You've now also got the rebel Remainer Tories on a tightrope, because on the one hand, they do want to defeat the government on this key issue of a meaningful vote and stopping a no-deal Brexit. But they really don't want to topple Mrs May as Prime Minister. And that's really tricky for them in these coming days. And one thing we should say that this idea of a no-deal Brexit, that essentially is that Article 50 has been triggered and on the 29th of March 2019 it expires and Britain would fall out of the EU. And there's a lot of debate about what that would mean, what it would mean economically, administrative, legally, all that sort of thing. But the fact is, I personally don't think a no-deal Brexit is going to happen because, one, the preparations are simply not there. And we've done a lot of reporting on this about how the money hasn't been spent, the preparations haven't been made. And the second thing is... MPs just wouldn't risk it because it could be administrative calamity. No one really knows because it's not been done before. But I think what we have seen out of all this this week is that the House of Commons would find a way to stop a no-deal Brexit if that looks like a real scenario, Miranda. That's clearly the hope. But the problem is we are in really uncharted territory. And although nobody either here or in Brussels wants no deal... As we've discussed, an accidental one would be very damaging. And I think you can't really get away from this idea that perhaps George would know this much better than me, having spent so much time in Brussels. But you can't help but wonder whether the European negotiating team are being given some message that you can stop Brexit, you know, with these very hostile feelings that are now coming into the negotiations. And so I think it is actually genuinely dangerous, this idea of a no deal, because if on both sides there are more threats than promises, you could end up with a catastrophe. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there are a lot of back channels between Brussels and the pro-European rebels and they discuss... We saw that this week in a Daily Mail front page when they were caught in the European Commission's building in London. Indeed, yeah. Paul Dacre, the uh, editor of the Daily Mail, is going out in style here attacking the Remainers. But there are back channels. And I think the concern at the back of Theresa May's mind is that if you gave Parliament the kinds of powers that the pro-European rebels want... Brussels would look at that and think, well, hang on a sec, if we leave this long enough, we'll make the deal so unpalatable that Parliament will reject it. And then instead of negotiating with Theresa May, we can negotiate directly with the House of Commons, which happens to be quite pro-European. 
So that's the danger for Theresa May. So although this is quite a technical issue, the question of who is in control in the end game of Brussels is hugely significant. And obviously to quote Lyndon Johnson here, it's all about the numbers. That's been the story of this week that we know there's the ERG group of hardline Brexiters, about 70 in number, and they are very firmly behind Mrs May because she seems to still be delivering their vision of Brexit. If that changes, then their position will change. We haven't heard as much in the past couple of weeks and months from the pro-Europeans to this side. This is people, obviously, Dominic Grieve has emerged as the key figure in this, the former Attorney General, and Nikki Morgan, Anna Subri. These are names who have been bouncing around the TV studios and newspapers. This group essentially wants as soft as Brexit possible. I'm sure they'd want no Brexit, but they don't see that as emerging, but they want to try and get as soft as possible. The real question, George, this comes down to is, do they have the numbers to defeat the government on Wednesday when they had this crunch vote on a meaningful vote one assumes they did otherwise why would the government try to buy them off and that's going to be put to a test next Wednesday because after the government quote unquote betrayed them (laughs) they're going to retable the vote and as you said back to where we are so how strong and how united do you think this group we need to get some kind of name for this group of people to (laughs) put them together well you were talking about the European research group the Tory right the Eurosceptics we think you know, they have about 60 people who typically sign up to their newsletters and sign letters to the Prime Minister. The power they have over the Prime Minister is they've got enough people to trigger a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister, but they probably don't have enough MPs to bring her down. On the other hand, we hear about the pro-European rebels who probably the real, the ones who are prepared to put their head over the parapet, we're probably talking about a number between 15 and 20. Now, the point about them is that they are sufficient to remove Theresa May's majority and to win votes in the House of Commons. So that's how the two sides line up. And as you say, we may not know until next Wednesday whether they have the nerve to vote the government down again on this issue when it comes back to the House of Commons. As you say, it seems almost certain that the government thought they were going to lose last week. The question is, has the dynamic changed enough in the intervening week. And Dominic Grieve, I thought, was quite interesting. He wasn't saying he was absolutely confident they they would be able to defeat the government next week. So on the face of it, you would think that so much bitterness has now entered the debate that people feel betrayed battle lines are being drawn and hardening that actually the government does face quite a tough challenge next Wednesday. That is the real question Miranda because Dominic Grieve and this group we talked about they essentially trusted the government they said we'll adopt most of what you want and we'll have discussions on other parts of it and they now claim that they've gone back on their word in that case so the atmosphere is extraordinary and it's worth just pointing out this is not even debates within parties this is a debate within the Conservative Party not even in Parliament or even with Brussels. The negotiators must be looking on just thinking we've got a summit coming up very soon where one would hope we would try and make some kind of progress and we're still having this internal debates that is going on and on and on. Yes I think when we look at what's coming up on Wednesday in the Commons we also need to remember that with parliamentary rebellions I'm sure George will agree quite a lot of it's about the atmosphere on the day and the confidence of the potential rebels and a lot of it's going to be about whether those people who were trooping in and out to see Mrs May to extract the promise that didn't come good this past week, whether they'll all be there and willing to do it again. And, you know, last night, some on the government side seemed to be quite confident about picking them off. And that's always key to a government operation when you've got a rebellion on the horizon. I mean, we shouldn't forget that Labour also had its own rebellion on these votes this week. So it is, of course, as you say, Mrs May against factions of her own party. But it's also the government against the House of Commons as a whole, really, where you look at the balance of opinion. And who is representing the much-quoted will of the people when you had a 52-48 
vote and the nation was split. Yeah, this point on Labour, George, is quite significant because obviously a lot of Labour MPs would like to stay in the EA and would like to stay in the customs union because it keeps the UK close to Europe and may even make it easier to rejoin the EU at some point in the future. And Labour had a pretty sizable, the biggest rebellion in Jeremy Corbyn's experience, but ultimately the vote still went their way and Jeremy Corbyn's hard Brexit vision that annoys a lot of his MPs and a lot of people in the country, I suspect, is still going forward. Yeah, that's right. I think there were 75 MPs in the end who voted against the Labour line and uh, voted to keep Britain in the single market. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't much like the single market and he wants to restrict freedom of movement. He wants the freedom to give state aids and out to British industry. So he won the day, but as I said, it was a big, big rebellion. And I think that sort of the broader politics of that were interestingly reflected in a by-election this week in Lewisham, Lewisham East, where the Labour votes fell substantially. And the Liberal Democrats actually went from 4% in the polls up to 25% in the polls in a by-election which was dominated by Brexit. So I think there is a danger for Jeremy Corbyn that people are now starting to recognise the fact that he is actually an agent helping Theresa May deliver what some people would regard as a hard Brexit. And that's dangerous for Jeremy Corbyn because on the one hand, he isn't connecting very well with white working class voters, particularly in the North, Midlands and so on, and Wales. And at the same time, he's now in danger of losing this middle class bourgeois left that have been his bedrock up until now because of his position on Brexit. So it's a difficult position for him. Now, let's just cast this all forward to later in the year because that's what the withdrawal bill is really all about. The Theresa May will get some kind of deal and will come back with it to the House of Commons. And regardless of whether its amendment goes through or Dominic Greaves' amendment goes through, George, it means that there'll be a vote in the House of Commons on that deal. If the vote goes through, then that's it. The deal becomes law and we leave the EU and enter the transition period and begin our new life on the other side. But what do you think then happens if that vote doesn't go through? Well, that's the $100 million question. I think the first thing to say is that the vote probably won't happen until getting quite late in the day. I mean, people talk about this being settled at a summit in October. I can bet you anything you like, we'll be into December by the time this comes around. And it may be the House of Commons is voting on this even in January in the new year, two or three months before we actually leave. So it's going to be a crucial moment. As you say, the House of Commons does have a vote on the government's deal. If it's rejected, then there is a question about what happens next, because one of the things that Dominic Grieve wants is the power for the House of Commons to say, we've rejected it, and these are the specific reasons we've rejected it. Go back to Brussels and, for example, keep us in the customs union. The government doesn't want that. So what does the Prime Minister do in those circumstances? Is it a resigning matter? Certainly the Conservative Party doesn't want to vote for a general election. So she could end up being in a situation where her deal's rejected, the Conservative Party is too scared to have a general election, and she'll be trying to second guess what the House of Commons meant when it said no. The thing is, though, Miranda, in all honesty, if the House of Commons voted down that deal, it would be pretty bad for Mrs May because it would be the last two years of her reputation gone. And I think, you know, Tom Tuggenhat, who's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, popped up and said, essentially, if the deal is voted down under any circumstances, it will be a new government, whether that's a new Conservative government or a new Labour government. But her position, one would think, would be pretty untenable. Well, it absolutely would in normal times. But we've been saying that her position is untenable <laughs> right from the morning after the 2017 election last year. And the thing is, she's not leading because she can't lead, because she has a divided nation and a divided party. Losing that vote may on the day 
look disastrous and inevitably her sort of final day in Downing Street. Or it may look at the time when it's been kicked down the road again, as George says, it inevitably will be, as another episode in this peculiar story. And you can sort of envisage a scenario in which the Prime Minister of the UK becomes the instrument of Parliament, being instructed by Parliament how to go and continue and conclude these negotiations. I mean, this is a completely new challenge that we're facing. It's finally, George, the last point that struck me this week is that Mrs May's strategy for surviving in Downing Street has essentially been to not decide anything, to not actually make any firm policy decisions domestically or foreign policy-wise. You know, ever since she set out her red lines for Brexit before the general election, but since then has softened them a little bit in places, but essentially stayed with that. And that whenever they come to a crunch point where it looks like she's going to have to decide, they always find a way of pushing it forward. Do you think next week is going to be a point where she will actually have to decide something between these two camps in her party? Well, I agree with your premise that she has typically just deferred all decisions, but the decisions are now going to come thick and fast and we're now actually running out of roads. She will have to make decisions. And actually, I think we saw quite recently where she did have to choose on the the question of the Irish backstop, which we've discussed before on this podcast, where she did face down the Eurosceptics and said, we're going to basically stay in the customs union for an indefinite time. That was a, a decision which she took. I think on this one, look, I think she's sending out signals she wants to face down the pro-Europeans on this. But if she loses, is that the end of the world for her? At least you can say to the Eurosceptics, you can see what the will of the Parliament's like. You can see the kind of political parameters I'm working within. You have to live with it. Bullying and sexual harassment have been long-standing problems in the Palace of Westminster. By its very nature, the buildings and atmosphere develop power imbalances and unhealthy working relationships. In this weekend's FT magazine, Laura Hughes has investigated the level of bad behaviour and the severe problems stemming from the lack of a proper HR system. So Laura Hughes, I've heard about this for many, many years, been in and out right about Westminster for about seven years now, and there's so many consistent threads to the stories here. Essentially, you've got 650 small businesses running within the Palace of Westminster, which is MPs employing their own staff and running their own HR procedures. MPs often don't get any formal training in management. They have no experience in their past life for management, and they're working under a very stressful job situation, which can create some very bad things. What are the broad themes of what you've found in your weekend piece? So initially, last year, when all these big stories came out, big headlines, Michael Fallon, etc., there was a lot of Conservative MPs that came out and said, this is a witch hunt, and Labour MPs. And actually, I genuinely did think it was just a handful of wrong-uns doing some really awful things. It has actually become very clear that there are a number of MPs who have abused their position of power. Sexual harassment is easier to write about because there are specific incidences that people can remember. And bullying is much harder. It's actually my view that bullying is a worse problem. You outlined the reasons why this culture has been allowed to persist for so long and another reason why I couldn't find anyone to really go on record in the magazine piece is that they're still working in lobbying, in PR, they're still working in parliament, they might be in a department as a civil servant now and really are you going to stick out your line and potentially ruin your career which is exactly how they think because we all know how connected MPs are to lobbyists. If you name an MP and put yourself out there those MPs might share rumours about you and, and I know that that has happened to some young men who have made complaints and spoken to the media anonymously before. So there is this culture. You have a building where the laws of the land are written and enforced, and yet the MPs who write them are not living to them themselves. And I have watched MPs sit on select committees and grill public figures about inappropriate things going on in their businesses. And I just sit there thinking, you know that you have broken your own rules. And there is a new HR system that is coming into place for the first time.
time that will be independent, but it still has to be voted through by MPs. And I'm hearing that there is still some resistance and MPs thinking that all these complaints are false. And I hope this piece goes somewhere in explaining that there really is a problem here. And I've only highlighted 10 cases. I spoke to over 30 people. There are a lot more instances that I have in my head that I can't write about because the victims don't want me to. It's this problem that essentially MPs see themselves as accountable and employed by the voters, not by any kind of central civil service authority. And that's why I think there's been a lot of resistance to having an central HR system because MPs feel it shifts the balance away from them being independent people who just happen to sit in the House of Commons to being employed by the House of Commons. Clearly, as you said, there needs to be some change in that situation. We've seen this in Capitol Hill in the US. We've seen this in the European Parliament. There's something about systems that are based on power and relationships that create these problems. And I think, as you rightly said, don't want to break those relationships. And I guess it's all about having trust in the system because I think when there's been issues in the past, it's gone to the party whips office, which is the nearest thing to a sort of a disciplinary regime for parties. But even in that situation, there's not necessarily been confidence that the whips are dealing with this in a way that they should have done. And I think there are whips who are very aware of that and perhaps in retrospect are feeling a little bit guilty that nothing really happened. And that's the thing is that so many MPs will read that piece and think, oh, could that be so-and-so? Could that be so-and-so? Because we all know who these MPs are and yet nothing ever really happens. When the Expenses scandal came out, there was huge resistance to an independent regulator, but we saw IPSA come to pass. And, and my feeling is very strong that if MPs resist an independent HR, then it should be taken totally out of house in the same way that IPSA was. When you go for a job interview with an MP, I've heard of stories where men have taken out young men and women for a nice cosy dinner, and there has been a suggestion of something at the end of that dinner. Now, if you had a proper functioning HR, there would be somebody else sat in the room during the day making sure that that MP is asking the right questions. That's such a basic point. There is resistance and of course there's going to be, but unless something real changes and unless people feel as though they are protected, they're not going to speak out and they're not going to complain and I think there is still a huge taboo and I've had lots of anonymous emails yesterday and also this morning from people saying, thank you for writing this piece I was assaulted by an MP X number of years ago, I left politics, I still don't think anything has really changed and we've had stories over the years detailing these things and obviously this year there's been the Me Too, the Harvey Weinstein, the gender pay gap stories. And I think there is a moment now to jump on and Andrea Ledson is trying, but I believe that she is also slightly worried that MPs are going to keep resisting it. What we can't have is a situation where MPs mark their own homework. And we have this farcical situation with John Burko in the chamber at the moment where there were calls for an investigation and the Danders Commissioner couldn't investigate because guess what? MPs said she shouldn't. So on the John Burko thing, there's been allegations again of bullying towards members of staff, but also even towards ministers and people in the House of Commons and Speaker Burko fiercely rejects all these allegations. But on those, there clearly seems to be a procedural problem that, you know, this is the person who's in charge of order within the House of Commons, of discipline in the House of Commons, and it's generally seen to be someone who is totally neutral. They come from political parties, but become party neutral, or at least supposed to be, when they enter the Speaker's chair, and they're there as long as they have the confidence of the House of Commons. 
at Michael Martins, who was the speaker before John Burko. He lost the confidence of the chamber following the MP's expenses scandal. And that's where John Burko came in to clean all this up. And whether these allegations are true or not, it does strike me that there should be a procedure in place where everyone can have full confidence in it. Because just like people working for MPs, it really leaves Parliament open to the accusations that it's not doing its job properly as a legislative body if itself is not abiding by the rules and laws that it is insisting others have. And also with John Burko, he's very powerful. He can make or break your career in the House of Commons because he is the one that chooses MPs to speak on the back benches. So if you annoy him, perhaps he might not pick you again. So you can't make your point. I think if you went back and created the speaker's system and the power that he has, you just would do it totally differently. You would never give one person in Parliament that much power. You wouldn't create a system where MPs were able to decide whether their colleagues should be investigated or not. Catherine Hudson was the former Standards Commissioner. She spoke and I saw letters to her to women that can of sexual assault in which she complained about the fact that she had tried to introduce a more rigorous independent system so that people could make complaints but it was completely objected to by a number of MPs so I don't know where we're going to get to with this. We will see if MPs pass this new HR system. There's the two votes on two issues. And one of them is that MPs will have to approve giving the Stance Commissioner these new powers of recall, which could see an MP kicked out of the House of Commons. I mean, that is surely the biggest punishment of all, but that I, still has to be passed by MPs. I know what the recall thing is come and gone over many years about whether MPs should have that power. And if you take the example of Jared O'Mara, who's the MP for Sheffield Hallam. No. Never spoken in the House of Commons. And he has got health issues which we should be respectful of but there have been questions about, I think he said in the past and comments on whether he's suitable to be an MP and yet the voters of Sheffield Hallam can't do anything about that and I think that is clearly a problem. On the other side you always get the question of is this going to become a witch hunt and will voters just simply have this system of whenever an MP they don't like doesn't they don't like they vote against it and it just becomes a constant churn. But also it just staggers me that the whips in various parties will be aware of misbehaviour for years and that the punishment might be that if you were a minister you lose your job in the next reshuffle and you go back to the backbenchers and the whips will be aware of the behaviour they've had complaints and yet these MPs are still allowed to go and sit in the back of the House of Commons employ whoever the hell they want bring interns in that they select in a very informal basis sometimes and nothing is done about that and for me it is sort of a little bit black and white if you are an MP you are expected to behave to a certain standard And if you're not, you should not enjoy the privileges of sitting in that House of Commons being the sort of idol to young people. And that's the bit I think that also has really got to me is that a lot of the young'uns that come into Parliament as 18-year-old interns look at these MPs as if they are heroes, absolute heroes. So when one of them reaches over and puts their hand down their trousers, they're never going to say anything. They're never going to do anything. And the MP knows that. And if the party is aware that that behaviour is going on, I'm sorry, that MP should not be allowed to remain in the House of Commons. And finally, that brings on to my last point on this, which is the way that works is the researchers who work for MPs often come into Parliament straight from university and very much see this as a first step on some kind of political career, whether into the Commons itself or into lobbying in the political world. And these people, their whole perception of the world is based on what they see in that what can often be their first job. But they're often very powerless. And it's the same with the question about the clerks in the House of Commons as well. There's a long food chain within the House of Commons, a very hierarchical system, and it is very very, very sad that people who will get potentially turned away from politics, and I've spoken to people who completely decided to go and do something different. They went in, they worked for MPs for a couple of years and suffered from bullying or bad tempers or things even worse that that you've mentioned, and decided you know what, actually I can't be bothered with this that there's far more other things I can do. Ultimately that's a bad thing for our whole country and for our whole political system. 
it's tragic. And actually, a lot of the reason why young people get involved in politics at university and then go on to work for an MP is sometimes because something really awful has happened to them. And they have this fire and they want to do something in the world that makes it a bit better. And you can see it when MPs stand up in the Commons sometimes, I think. You can see that they're there for the right reasons. And then when they get knocked down in the way that they have or abused or taken advantage of, quite frankly, they don't want to do it anymore because they've come from a position of vulnerability anyway. And it's just been exploited and perhaps they don't have the confidence to carry on or to make a complaint. So they do just go. And that is tragic because some of those people are exactly who we want to be in Parliament because they are there helping to draw up legislation for the people who have had experiences like they did when they were young. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Miranda and Laura for joining us. But before we go, we have a quick favour to ask. We're conducting a survey to see what our listeners think of Financial Times podcast. If you have a few spare minutes, click on the link in the show notes, fill in a quick form and send us in some feedback. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Molly Mintz. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.